from Swarthmore College. From Swarthmore College, this is... This is... This is... This is War News Radio. the stalling 2016 peace deal between the Colombian government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, more commonly known as FARC. Before we dive into the story, some quick background. The roots of this conflict go all the way back to the 1950s, where the decade-long period of political violence is fittingly known as La Violencia. La Violencia was fought between Colombia's conservative and liberal parties and is estimated to have killed over 200,000 people the vast majority of whom lived in the nation's rural areas. FARC was founded as a communist guerrilla movement in the early 1960s and claimed to fight for the rights of poor rural peasants and to protect them from government-sanctioned violence. By the time of the peace deal in 2016, FARC and the Colombian government had been fighting a low-intensity war for over 50 years. While FARC funded much of its activities through drug trafficking, extortion, and kidnapping, the Colombian government has not been any better. The government claims to fight against FARC's terrorism, but has perpetrated many abuses of its own. The government has both directly and indirectly worked with right-wing paramilitary groups who have engaged in kidnapping, drug trafficking, and extreme rural violence of their own. Currently, right-wing paramilitaries control the majority of the drug trade and are responsible for a large portion of the deaths in the conflict. That's our really brief summary of the conflict. In 2016, Colombian President Juan Manuel Santos and the leaders of FARC signed a historic ceasefire deal, bringing to an end the more than 50-year conflict. The peace deal incorporated FARC as a political party, created land protections for poor rural peasants, addressed issues of illicit drugs, and created a national reconciliation process. President Santos was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts. Three years later, the nation is still wrestling with the implementation of the peace deal and it hasn't been an easy journey. A faction of former FARC combatants have given up on the peace process entirely, declaring the resumption of armed conflict. And the current president of Colombia, Ivan Duque Marquez, who campaigned against the peace deal in 2016, is far less willing to pursue peace than President Santos was. Taking all that into account, what went wrong in the 2016 peace deal, and how can it be salvaged? The rest of this story will attempt to answer that question. We'll talk to Andres Tovar, a Colombian oil engineer of 25 years who directly employs and supervises ex-combatants, and Jennifer Vargas Reyna, a postdoctoral associate at Yale University who specializes in land grabs and armed conflict. Mr. Tovar is an interesting source of information on the conflict due to the nature and scope of his experience working in the oil fields of Colombia as the lead engineer for various projects years ago, I took charge first of a project in Puerto Boyacá, which is the town where the right paramilitary were born some 20, 30 years ago. And when you come into the town, is a sign, a very clear sign that says, Bienvenidos a la capital contrainsurgente de Colombia, which is welcome to the contrainsurgent capital of Colombia. I had also to 
project project in San Vicente Caguán, which is Caquetá, it's kind of one of the biggest strongholds of FARC. So I've seen both extremes rather well. I'll always share with you guys from the civilian point of view, from just how you go around it and what you see when you're in those places. Reintegration and reconciliation of the people of Colombia involved in this conflict is a noble pursuit, and policies that promote this are a step in the right direction. But exactly what the aftermath of the peace process looks like in daily life can be unclear. Mr. Tovar directs various oil projects that employ recently disarmed combatants and thus interacts with many former FARC members attempting to reintegrate into society. It works. You go to either or, the extreme left or the extreme right. Go up there with an oil field project, and in the case of my projects, there were sort of about 60 people in them. Of labor is you have the head of the project, which, which was myself, and then 15 engineers, and then you had another around 40 to 45, which are just guys, rustabouts. Is that is still a valid term in the state? Come from the communities. So it's unskilled labor. They'll drive a shovel. The local communities have a vested interest in making sure that ex combatants are employed in order to prevent further hostilities. And projects like Mr. Tovar's accomplish this. You're asked by the communities, as the, it's a nice term to put it, that you hire local labor, and you do so. So you keep them happy and you keep yourself out of trouble. The background of these ex combatants is extremely important in understanding how the conflict originated, was perpetuated, and now how these individuals can successfully return to society. You hire a lot of these people, a lot of the ex combatants that have turned themselves into the army have special work permits. So you hire those people, which they're amnistiados, basically. They're amnestized guys, they're called like that, and they bring your papers, and they're usually just nice people that were forced into the combat, whether they're left or they're right. They just happen to be the son of the local farmers and of the very local poor people, and either they're extreme right or the extreme left, went to the house and they told the farmer, you got three kids, we want one of them. Pick one, he comes to fight on our side and he has to give a kid to the war, and that's the ex-combatant you hire. In the beginning, FARC recruited soldiers to fight to recreate a society that shared wealth equally with the working class and opposed the rich, powerful, and corrupt upper class. But as the years have gone by, FARC's ranks have been filled with impressed children of local farmers rather than ideological hardliners. Mr. Tovar separates the modern-day FARC into two groups. The true leftist ideologues, and those more interested in making money than ideology. While political leaders are generally wealthy, educated individuals, the average foot soldier on either side of the conflict is from a very different demographic. They don't have any sort of education. They were born into destitute poverty. Anything that sounds mediumly reasonably idealistic, they'll buy it. If they haven't heard anything better, they don't know anything better. They're given some military training, a rifle, and they go and kill the other side. Working in close quarters with former soldiers in such a tumultuous environment doesn't exactly make for a relaxing day at the office, but a few basic rules prevent too many problems from occurring. There's very basic rules to it. You don't ask questions about their past life. Don't ask who, what, when, where. So golden rule there is don't ask anything. No political opinions. None. Zero. Keep them to yourself. While many ex-combatants have given up on the guerrilla life, some members of FARC have grown impatient with the reintegration process 
and tired of cooperating with a government that has not fulfilled its peace deal promises and have begun to return taking up arms and continue their old way of life. Even a few key leaders of FARC have announced their intent to rearm, and this has led to concerns that the peace deal could fall apart as both sides grow impatient with the other and lose faith in the political process. It doesn't worry me on a larger scale that we're going to have another FARC. Absolutely not. As a condition of amnesty, combatants must sacrifice the money they earn through illegal means, and while a select few FARC leaders have millions of dollars stashed away, the average soldier is incredibly poor, and most were more than willing to cooperate. Furthermore, FARC party members are divided over the acceptable methods to accomplish their goals, with some more comfortable with illegal activity and others who have put their hope in democracy and free discussion. Got us a vote in the last election. They got 80,000 votes out of the 20 million votes. So they're, it's like politically, they're insignificant right now. Those who still want to advocate their leftist ideas are taking their arguments to the Colombian Senate under provisions of the peace deal and may have begun to realize that while drug trafficking and kidnappings can fund a large criminal operation, they aren't an acceptable or effective way of bringing about social change. After so many years of conflict, the people of Colombia on both sides of the political spectrum are simply fed up with violence. We're dancing. Uh, these people going around shooting our police. They, I mean, the left here has made it very clear like, we are not guerrillas, we are not accepting that position, armed forces, policemen. So, there's no, there's no public support for such, a, for such a radical position. As the people of Colombia attempt to heal the wounds of political conflict, it has become apparent that political views aren't the only division in Colombian society. The conflict at first glance seems relatively straightforward. On one side is the rural insurgency of FARC, and on the other is the Colombian state. However, this simple understanding of the conflict ignores the reality. To better understand this reality and the history behind the conflict, we spoke to Jennifer Vargas Reyna. I am a postdoctoral associate in the Agrarian Studies program at Yale University. I worked as a lecturer at the National University, that is a public university in Colombia. And I also work as a lecturer in the Javeriana University. And I had the chance, the opportunity to work with the state in the government of the former President uh, Santos. And I was working in the post-conflict ministry some months. I was working also in different NGOs, working with peasant population and uh, in different projects related with peace process or how we can create opportunities to um, educate or create different spaces and process to create conscious about the importance of peace and transform the different conflicts and violence. Ms. Vargas Reyna's research focuses on the role of land grabs in armed conflict specifically in the context of Colombia. Uh, I'm wondering why in some territories in Colombia uh, there has been this land grabbing and land accumulation and why in other territories of the Colombia during the Civil War 
this phenomenon doesn't happen. And, and this is a, an important problematic in Colombia because the land grab has been so huge, you know. Uh, the armed groups have stolen more than 8.8 million of hectares. This is like the size of Portugal. It's a huge amount of land. Land grabs are clearly vital in understanding the larger context of the conflict. FARC emerged in the early 1960s out of what were called peasant leagues, peasants who organized in self-defense against land grabs by large landowners who often attempted to forcibly take the land. First, there was a massive land grabbing during the Civil War. The poor people lost their lands, and these lands uh, are in the hands of rich people. Some of them are politicians, some of them are armed groups, some of them are local investors, foreign investors. And there are a lot of problems related with the property rights. Ms. Vargas Reyna is getting at something really interesting here. Like we said earlier, the conflict appears relatively straightforward at first, a battle of political ideology between left-wing FARC and the Colombian state, with right-wing paramilitaries thrown into the mix. However, that simple history leaves out a crucial factor to understanding the conflict, economics. Yeah, Bryce, that's true. Land is crucial for multiple economic reasons. Cartels need land to grow and transport drugs. Foreign investors and large landowners need land for money-making opportunities like growing crops and constructing mines, just to name a few options. And the history of land grabs in Colombia has been one of taking land from peasants to support big business and big agriculture, often working in tandem with right-wing paramilitaries to violently take land. And land is closely connected to violence. Today in Colombia, rural community leaders and activists are bearing the brunt of the violence. According to Reuters, hundreds of community leaders have been killed since the signing of the peace deal. These activists have been attempting to protect the environment, curb illegal mining, and oppose the drug trade. And they live in constant danger because of this activism. It's a really awful situation. In addition to rural community leaders, former FARC combatants who have complied with the peace deals and laid down their arms are also being killed at alarming rates. President Duque has been widely criticized for not doing enough to stop these killings. What can be done? While acknowledging that it was a problem, Mr. Tovar didn't see a clear solution. A very good question. I don't know the level of protection that these people are being provided, and none of them would be killed. We admire them because they're having been that brave to mobilize and show their heads that they are former combatants. Because, yes, they are being shot down. I, I would be wrong to say if uh, the, the level of protection is appropriate or not. I just cannot judge it. I don't know what the appropriate level of protection for them. And they've got to realize that they were combatants and that they had enemies. And then when they show up their head, whoever was at the other side of their guns and they're sure that they did something with those guys to that person, they're going to go after them, most likely. That's what former combatants face. I wish it weren't that way. They're very brave, all of them. But uh, it is a fact that something that they have to face proper level of protection, I couldn't tell you what is proper. It's like each one should get a level 5 bulletproof vehicle, bulletproof house, and 24-7 three bodyguards. And that's the only way you could protect them all. It's a doable, not doable. 
Ms. Vargas Reyna pointed out another problem stemming from the targeting of former combatants. Examples in the world that show us that there are not security for demobilized people if combatants are going to rearm. So this is what happened in Colombia. Um, but there are more people. Most of the demobilized people of FARC are now uh, commitment with the peace. So uh, there is a difficult moment, of course, but we have to be hope that uh, the peace is going to win this battle. So this is where Colombia stands now the widely heralded 2016 peace deal failing, and political violence showing no end in sight. Some FARC combatants are remobilizing because they feel the government hasn't held up the peace deal, and President Duque's anti-peace deal sentiments are given the political cover they need to give up on the peace deal by this remobilization. So Bryce, where does that leave us? It's hard to say, Nick. We certainly don't have the answer. The best we can do is leave with a quote from Ms. Vargas Reyna on how Colombia can move forward. I think that the only way in which we can protect the, the peace process is uh, with the action from civil society, NGOs, international community, international justice, different sectors and people who are trying to, to support the peace process. It's that we really need in this moment. But because if people just wait that the state do the homework, the state's not going to do it. They're not going to do it. The, the, the government is not, not going to do it. So people have to do what we can for, for protect the peace process. For War News Radio, I'm Bryce Busser. And I'm Nick Herschel Burns. Thanks again to Andres Tovar and Jennifer Vargas Reyna for speaking with us. If you want to hear more pieces from us, find us on Facebook or visit our website at warnewsradio.org. Thank you for listening.